Welcome to the Story Church Podcast. The Story Church Podcast is the official podcast of the Story Church Project, which focuses on redesigning Adventism from tradition to mission. Hey guys, it's Pastor Marcus here again. I want to welcome you back to a new episode of the Story Church Project. And this episode of the Story Church Project is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. You absolutely have got to check them out. So go to thehaystack.org and that is The Haystack Life Culture Theology. Like I said in the last episode, um, I'm officially sort of like a new thing. I'm sponsored by The Haystack now, which is great because it gives me the ability to promote and advertise a lot more. Uh, But I also, I'm not just throwing it out there because it's a sponsorship thing. I honestly believe in what they're doing. So especially if you're an Adventist millennial, you've got a lot of questions about Adventist theology and culture, etc. Check them out. You'll absolutely love it. Anyways, let me jump into this week's episode because this week's episode is heavy. Like it's super duper heavy. So I'm really happy that I'm not bearing the burden of this week's episode alone. Uh, I'm going to be talking with a friend who I'm going to introduce in a moment about one of the modes of thought within Adventism that I have for many years been saying is is problematic. And we're going to talk about that today. And that that's called last generation theology. And maybe you've heard of last generation theology. Maybe you haven't. Uh, some people call it final generation perfectionism or just sinless perfectionism. It comes by different names. And our objective here is not to um, go on the attack against uh, any sort of theological mode or, or thinkers, but we just simply want to discuss the issues um, openly and honestly uh, and, and see how we can um, see them properly, see them biblically, and also how understanding these things properly can influence and impact the way we do mission as a church uh, more positively. So anyways, uh, without further ado, because that was like the longest introduction ever, I want to introduce you guys to my friend, Mike Cyprian Manea, who's joined me, joining me all the way from the U.S. Mike, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Marcus. Awesome, man. Look, welcome to the uh, Story Church podcast, man. It's super cool to have you here. And before we dive in, can you give us just a tiny little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and uh, and just um, what your passion is? Okay, well, that's probably the going to be the hardest part of the podcast for me. I always uh, have a hard time answering those kinds of questions. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lifelong Adventist. Um, Decided when I was about 19. That's that's when I'm uh, pretty much uh, had my own Christian experience. Um, decided to go to the seminary. I dropped out about halfway through. Spent the next 20 years almost doing different things: Bible work, missionary work, business, teaching, a bunch of other stuff. Then finally uh, went back and got um, finished my MDiv, and just within the past three months or so. Uh, uh, Received the pastoral pastoring call, so um, I have a, a few churches in Mississippi at the moment. So that's kind of a really quick synopsis. Uh, throughout this entire time, the past 25 years or so, have been really interested in theology and things going on in the Adventist Church and in the wider Christian community. So LGT has definitely been on my radar, uh, kind of like yours as well. Yeah, man. And look, for those of you who um, are just hearing Mike for the first time, um, Mike and I have co-written an article in the past and we've done some work together in the past. And toward the end of the podcast, I'm going to just have him share 
uh, his website where he's got lots of his articles and stuff. Uh, this guy is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's he's one of the best theologians I know, thinkers, uh, and you know, absolutely awesome to have you on the podcast, um, Mike. I couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than you, uh, because we have discussed this uh, to some degree um, over the last few years. And uh, I don't know, to some degree is probably an understatement. Actually, we've discussed it in depth um, over yeah. the last few years. And um, and I myself, you know, once was a, a, a believer and sort of proponent of these ideas. And, and, and so we'll get into that in a little bit. But I just want to ask um, another question just to get to know Mike a little bit better. And then we'll dive into our topic. So, Mike, <clears throat> yeah. I always ask my guests a dumb question um, just to get to know them a little bit better. So this one's not too dumb. This is probably more like a lighthearted question. Dumb is, is, is probably being too dramatic. Um, but a lighthearted question. Do you have a favorite dessert? <laughs> wow. Favorite dessert. Uh, nope. I can't think of any one thing, but I, I do have a sweet tooth. So, uh, so I you probably, like them all. Yeah, pretty much anything <laughs> that looks, looks, uh, looks good. I'll probably take a, a piece of it. Not, not too much because yeah, I can't handle too much of it, but yeah. <laughs> man you did that's that's uh i'm looking around to see if i can see candace um my wife candace she's got a major sweet tooth man so she'll just have a little bit of all of it um i'm, I'm yeah. a savory guy so you know my family's from puerto rico we love our savory food um and i'm sure there's you know plenty of puerto ricans who have their sweet tooth but I, i've got my savory tooth man i just i don't do sweets very much i can do i can do savory all day so um so hey that's good to know man when i when, when we get together when i come down to the u.s sometime uh, i know to bring you just a one of those uh, mixed bags from the supermarket Ooh, with like a little bit of go. every kind of dessert bro <laughs> there you go there you go that should work awesome man so let's let's um let's dive in and have this conversation because um again like i said before this is really really important when it comes to mission and you know it's if there's one thing that i point out at the story church project all the time is that the local Adventist church is struggling to connect and there's various different reasons for that um struggling to connect with mission uh especially in the western world and there's a lot of different reasons for that there's not just one um but i'm of the opinion that one of those reasons is unhealthy theology and unhealthy theology breeds unhealthy practices and um, and I do believe uh, wholeheartedly that last generation theology is one of those unhealthy theologies. Uh, but let's let's begin um, with a quick question. I'll, I'll ask you this question just to lay the foundation. And the question is, uh, what exactly is last generation theology? Can you give us a snippet? Uh, yeah, that's. That's probably one of the most difficult questions, um, just because there's so much involved in this. And, uh, you, you know, if you talk to one expert or another, everybody's going to have a somewhat different definition. Um, usually there's there's a, a collection of topics that you hear people discuss when, when they get into LGT. Things like uh, the nature of sin, the nature of Christ, perfection, uh, the delay of Christ's second coming, um, <clears throat> things, topics, uh, topics of that nature. But um, what I usually classify it as uh, the the one element that I think is unique uh, to where people can believe some of those other elements and still not necessarily be part of LGT uh, is this idea that. Um, uh, we are somehow, this last generation is somehow um, 
they they have the responsibility of of working together with God to to end the great controversy by overcoming sin, uh, reaching character perfection, and without this, um, God basically cannot win the great controversy. He cannot really answer Satan's accusations properly, mm. and because we haven't done this yet, uh, Christ's coming is being delayed further. Yeah, I think. So ho hopefully that that will kind of give a quick uh, synopsis there. Yeah, I think. Look, I think that that's a that's a good synopsis. And like I said, I, I want to be I want to be fair because you know it, it's it's not the objective to get together and say, hey, let's bash <laughs> all these yeah, all these people. Yeah. But um, to have this sort of a dialogue because this is this is I think a really really good definition because like you said, LGT comes in a lot of different colors, and some people within the LGT camp are radicals. And others are quite mild and nuanced, and so there's a lot of there's a spectrum of ideas there, and it's it's hard or, or unfair to say, well, here is in a you know for everyone to paint it all in one brush. Um, but I would I do agree with you. I think that fundamentally one of the things that drives the conversation is the idea: look, Jesus hasn't returned yet. Why hasn't he returned yet? And then the obvious sort of answer that comes from that is we we haven't you know we 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 uh, basically we're we're to blame. And so we can postpone the return of Jesus and we're also the ones who can who can make it happen faster. So really, and look, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Let's bounce back and forth over this. In my opinion, as an Adventist, um, with a passion for mission and with a passion for the gospel, this idea just fundamentally breeds a focus on myself. Like that's the bottom line where I'm like, okay, this is not cool. It just breeds a focus on myself. Do you do have you seen that? Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think I think LGT does that, and and it, it, um, it kind of does it more with the people that uh, how would I say it? so the leaders, you know, the people that promote LGT, that the so-called theologians behind it. It doesn't seem to affect them as much as it does the people that listen to them. So, for example, I can have uh, somebody come to my church who's a promoter of LGT, do their list of messages. You know, they might be there for several hours on Sabbath presenting different topics. And then they could leave and go on with their lives. Uh, but the people that are left behind that buy into the message, they're the ones that end up struggling mm -hmm. uh, because they actually take it serious. While it seems that the people that promote the message, don't fully uh, absorb the implications of the message in their own personal lives. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I was actually just um, uh, recently I was just sharing an email with a with a with a dude I've been chatting with about this. And I said, like you, a, a, a doctrinal system has to be measured not only by what it does, what it says explicitly, but what it says implicitly, like the the you know, like the the reading between the lines that people walk away with. Um, which which can be really damaging and I don't know about you but like there was a period of life uh, in my life where I believed in LGT I didn't know what LGT was I'd never even heard the phrase but I believed in the ideas that undergird it has that been true for you yeah yeah and I, I don't know if I was ever a hundred percent committed to the to the system of thought um, it, it took a long time for me to even realize it was a kind of a independent system of thought but uh, yeah I think much of LGT was what I grew up with. Um, I, I grew up in uh, in Romania, 
And uh, the Adventism there has a lot of the elements of LGTA. You might say Romania is like a pre-1888 type of an Adventism. At least that's how it was when I was growing up. Mm. So uh, definitely, definitely picked up a lot of those elements. Yeah. So how did it impact you personally? And, and what was it that led you to kind of start walking out of that? Um, I, um, I, I think I kind of have to divide this, uh, uh, you know, how we would say before Christ, after Christ. Um, um, I had my conversion experience when I was at 19. Uh, before that, um, it affected me because it, I just couldn't understand the gospel. So I would, uh, I would have this idea that, okay, God wants us to, to live a better life. He wants us to accept him and to change and, and, and you know, to put away sin and all these things. But I never could figure out how to do that because I would make a commitment and then I would fall. And then I would realize that I wasn't really sincere to begin with and just get caught up in this cycle. And I think uh, just growing up with that, without this understanding the gospel, affected things. But after my conversion, he continued to affect me in a sense that even after my conversion, I would make mistakes and I didn't know how to relate to them. Hmm. So, um, you know, I was after my conversion, I had a I had the experience of victory, but every now and then I was still, you know. Uh, things would come up, and and then I would say, okay, what happened? Did I did I lose Christ now? Am I am I back to where I was before? Um, and I think it just made things a lot more difficult than they needed to be. Um, from a from a practical standpoint, theologically, it took a lot longer because I had to just work through all the elements and figure out uh, what exactly was going on, why different people couldn't couldn't. Uh, agree on, on different topics that seem straightforward. So, uh, yeah, it took a, a while to work through all the theology, but, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, I'm not sure if that fully answers the question, but... Uh, yeah, no, definitely. And, and uh, like, before we get into the other elements, because I wanted to start out with a little bit of sort of like the personal sort of impact sort of thing before we move on to some of the other elements, because um, it's the same for me. Like, there was a period of time where where I totally, you know, I was I was in this camp, in this mode of thought, um, without knowing. Like, I had never even heard the label before. And, and honestly, the label doesn't really concern me because, like I said, that label can mean a lot of different things. But it's yeah. just the ideas that, that are commonly undergirding that label that, um, that I had embraced. And so the best way that I can describe it is that I came to believe that salvation was what Jesus did plus what I do. Um, and so this is what I derived from all the sermons and all the books that I had heard and read that were teaching this stuff. Um, the ultimate conclusion, right? It's, it's not something that anyone said explicitly. It's the yeah, implicit yeah. conclusion was that Jesus does some of the saving and I do the rest, right? Yeah. Um, this idea that if I don't get my act together, the great controversy can't close um, you combine that with perfection and you combine that with the investigative judgment and, you know, you, you end up with a really, <laughs> really damaging um, ideology. And so that impacted me in a number of different ways, like number of, I won't get into all of them here, but um, 
Yeah, I, I think fundamentally the idea that it's, you know, like salvation is like here's Jesus did his part. Now you do yours and then you add them to basically like the Roman Catholic <laughs> version yeah, of the yeah. gospel. Like you yeah, add the two together. Is. Yeah, it and, is. It is the Catholic gospel. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, you know, you, yeah. Could have, you, you could add to this things like, OK, um, if I don't act, get my act together, the great controversy cannot end. And then you add to that the concept of the suffering of God. So, you know. God wants to end things and he cannot and God uh, has to continue to experience the the universal suffering of humanity because mm -hmm. of me you know mm -hmm. because I'm not getting my act together yeah um and uh, and then there's the the close of probation um uh, various issues of that where um you know you think okay well when probation closes I have to reach perfection but what if I don't quite make it there? And, you know, I'm I'm having this relationship with God now and I'm experiencing a transformation now. But, you know, what if probation closes and, and I'm not ready? And, and anyway, there's a whole there's a whole uh, set of thoughts or, or concerns connected with that that I've experienced and others. I've seen others experience that just bring confusion. Yeah. And, and I do want to say here that we're talking about this. And somebody might say, wait a minute, you guys are talking about Adventist theology. I mean, this is things that we read in Ellen White. And what I want to say is that there's another way to think and understand all these elements that are common to Adventism that do not involve embracing LGD. That's right. Yeah. There, there's a way to think about it that is healthy and that is gospel-centered and that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're not abandoning any, any of the key elements of Adventism and, and going against anything Ellen White has said. Would, and yet we're not buying into all this uh, damaging uh, types of thought patterns. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you said that because toward the end, um, we'll, you know, we'll explore that a little bit more. But like I, I'm always upfront with people like I believe there's going to be a final generation. I, I believe in the doctrine of the perfection of Christian character. You know, like I believe in the vindication of God through our lives. Like I believe in all those things. I just don't see them through the lens of you know we can say andreasen for those of you who are familiar with the history if you're not don't worry about it we won't go into that too much um but andreasen's lgt or even what it's become even after him because i you know i reckon some people have taken it in directions that maybe he didn't fully see um were coming so you know I, you can believe in in all of those things you know and, and i think that's a challenge because i think some people assume hey if you deny lgt then the only alternative is to embrace the cheap grace you know yeah. gospel and it's not true at all like i don't like you know the, i think the, the whole cheap grace thing irks me just as much as lgt does yeah, um, exactly. so you can you're right there's a healthy way of looking at and i don't know if we'll have time to let me maybe look at all the elements but there is certainly a healthy way a gospel-centered way to understand all of these elements and um with you know that that makes a difference in our lives but that also it's it's not damaging and and for my in my experience like i actually like i actually ended up in therapy man like it messed me up you know um wow. this these ideas and i even 10 years later i still have to navigate some of the um uh damage psychological damage that mm -hmm. some of these ideas had and my wife went through a similar experience because when she was growing up she was taught the same thing all look you know the the probation is going to close and we need to have you know, overcome all of our sins. And if we haven't overcome all of our sins, then, you know, when probation closes, our salvation is lost. And someone can respond and say, oh, but tell me where an LGT teacher says that. You know, find me a quote where they say those exact words. And the thing is like, I don't know, maybe you can find one. I haven't seen it. Maybe it's out there somewhere. 
Um, but even if it isn't, it's it's not about again what is explicitly stated. It's the fact that that idea, like I said, that my wife was taught, is so common in every single person laity that I've ever met that I've spoken to who believes in LGBT. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. at the very least, the people who are teaching this stuff should take inventory and say we need to be way clearer. You know, I don't know, maybe. Um, maybe that would help some. Maybe it yeah, wouldn't. Basically, but, you know, they don't yeah. provide a better structure or better framework that people can hang all these concepts on in a way that that is healthy. Mm. So they present their stuff, and people are left to make sense of all these little pieces. You know, I, I've had people come and say things like, uh, you know, at some point, the just judgment is going to switch from the judgment of the dead to the judgment of the living. And it's going to start with the house of God. So if at this very moment in time, God is going through the books and he comes to my name and I'm not perfect yet, then I'm lost. He's going to close that, that book and move on to somebody else. And I could go on for the next 10, 20 years or whatever it is, worshiping God and praising God and preaching and doing whatever I'm doing. And I'm actually lost exactly. because my probation yeah. has closed. Exactly. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard preview or any of those guys say these types of things but this is this is the, the the way people think because that's the message they've heard and they've never mm. been given a, a, a different way of making sense of it absolutely and and that's basically what happened to to my wife and so like when she was a teenager she she came to the conclusion because she was taught all this stuff you know probation is going to close and you've got to be perfect and all that and she wasn't perfect and so then not only is she struggling with her own you know sort of you know the sins in her own life but then she picks up other books by ellen white and she's got this bad gospel this this you know this what is the word i'm looking for this distorted skew, glasses this, this, yeah distorted glasses and she reads ellen white through those distorted glasses and finds like 500 other things she's doing wrong you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she 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 attempted um to take her life because she realized I'm never going to be good enough. What's the point in going on? I might as well just end it now. Um, so this has extreme existential like impact on people, emotional, psychological. Um, but I would also go to say, which is the area that I also find really interesting, that it has missional impact as well. Because when you're obsessed with, you know, overcoming your personal sins so that you can be perfect enough to, to be you know, sealed by the Holy Spirit or whatever, um, you, you, you lose the capacity to truly love and care and listen to people. And, and so that's another element that I've seen in communities of faith that embrace these ideas is that they tend to be less capable of interacting with people who are not like them. Yeah. Uh, and so this happened to me, you know, when I was sort of in this mode of thought, I found myself less capable of interacting with people who weren't part of my echo chamber so if you were like a lost person from the world and you like drinking and you know you were a party animal and completely secular not in church culture at all i didn't know how to relate to you because i was too busy trying to get myself perfect to get to heaven so yep. i didn't know how to be salt in in your world you know what i mean um yep. and that's a problem as well yeah you know it, this this applies especially well to uh, how a person going through this relates to other Adventists who are not as conservative as they are. And um, in the end, it's like people get to the conclusion, you know, we need to separate ourselves because it's one thing 
to deal with people out in the world that don't know better. They never had the light. But it's another thing when my own brothers and sisters in church are doing all these different things that they shouldn't be doing if they're trying to reach perfection, and they're, they're a stumbling block to me. So probably the best solution then is for me to move somewhere else, go up mm. to the mountains, um, go to one of the conservative institutions out there where there's other fellow believers, and we can work on, on our perfection together, uh, you know, overcoming sin together, as opposed to being constantly tempted by fellow Adventists that just don't take this thing seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Martin Weber in his book. Um, uh, what was the name of his book? My Tortured Conscience. Because Martin Weber was, you know, he was, he was uh, for those of you who never heard the name, he's um, a pastor. I think he's he's not a pastor anymore. I think he's um, working for Lagos or something. Anyways, um, but uh, he shares his story in this book. And, and he was going to an Adventist university studying theology. And he left the university and went to this like you know sort of like this independent place in the hills where people were like trying to be perfect um and he left the university because they served cakes and he he yeah. believed like if i'm gonna be perfect and ready to be taken to heaven i can't be in an environment where people serve cake you know um and so this yep. is and this is another another problem. All right, so I'm going to switch gears here just a little bit, but then I want to come back and go back to the theology because I, I want to pull out some stuff and do it. I want to switch gears here just a little bit and point out some things that for me as a millennial are really, really important. Um, and it's one of the things that perhaps irks me about these ideas the most. Um, and again, I don't want to say irks me about last generation theology itself the most because I'm sure there's probably people out there who self-identify as LGT who won't relate to what I'm about to say. Um, but the undergirding ideas that we've been discussing, whether whether those ideas lead you to self-identify as LGT or not, I don't really care. It's those undergirding ideas. And yeah. those undergirding ideas, what I find is that people who embrace them, um, they tend to, to become so obsessed with their personal piety that their whole religion becomes about themselves and their personal piety. And, and so what that does then is it makes them it makes them like almost like, I don't know. I, I hope this doesn't come across as mean because I'm trying really, like, you know, I don't like to be mean when I discuss ideas I don't agree with. But um, so take this with a grain of salt. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just struggling to find a better word. But it makes their faith expression pretty useless in the real world. Uh, and so I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So there's, uh, I won't I won't drop names because um, uh, that's not really my thing. But there is a, an, an, an old Adventist author who was a part of this sort of mode of thinking who wrote a book um, many years ago that was a huge hit in, in sort of the very conservative, sort of LGT-leaning um, Adventist circles. And in that book, the whole book was, he's basically talking about how the world is creeping into the church. So you look at one chapter, you look at the other. Every single chapter he talks about, well, here's how the world's creeping into the church. Chapter one, chapter two, a different issue. Chapter three, a different issue. Chapter four, a different yeah, issue. Yeah. All the way through. And every single one of them was about personal piety. So one chapter was about, oh, people are wearing wedding bands in the church. The world's creeping in, right? The other chapter was, oh, women, Adventist women are no longer going to the beach in one-piece bathers. The world's creeping in, right? Like this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. What, what many of us would refer to as majoring in the minors. So this whole book, but the book was a huge hit, man. It was a huge hit. Like I remember because my dad was into this whole like LGT thing and um, and he loved this book. Like it was like, it was like, <laughs> it was yep. like the Bible and the great controversy. And then number three is this one, you know, <laughs> Yeah. it was a huge hit in this circle. 
But the thing that I find interesting is that, you know, the, throughout the whole book, the guy's talking about how um, the world's creeping into the church. And he points out all these issues of personal piety. And um, but not once in the entire book does he talk about the racism in the church. Right. Um, which is clearly there. Uh, not yeah. once does he talk about nationalism in the church. Not once does he talk about chauvinism and the, the the way in which you know patriarchal culture within the church is excusing the abuse and mistreatment of of women of even of kids. Like it, none of that is mentioned, and it's like all oh, the world's creeping into the church because people are wearing wedding bands now. And I'm like, dude, you know, did you not hear the Lucy Bayard story where this woman died at the footsteps of an Adventist hospital because she was black, so they wouldn't admit her? Like, the world's not creeping in, man. It's been here for a long time. Yeah. yeah. But this mode of thought, like, it, it seems to me like it makes you obsessed with personal piety to the point that you lose sight of the real problematic issues that are actually out there in the church and in the culture as well. And, and my whole time that I spent in these circles... Not once did anybody talk about any of this stuff. Never. It was always, you know, coffee and did you stop eating cheese? And, you know, like not once did anyone ever talk about, you know, how are we positively impacting this world and the pain and suffering that people are experiencing? Like that was never on the conversation, never on the table. And so yeah. for me, this is a problem because this affects mission as well. You know, you got these communities of faith, you got these local churches where the members buy into this stuff and they become obsessed with this personal piety and they create these cultures where now you have an outsider who comes in and it doesn't fit in at all because all these people are just obsessed with their personal piety and with these rules that seem to make no sense or maybe they're just being exaggerated too much. Um, and so they lose their capacity to connect with the culture. Um, which is problematic as well. So I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm not really quite sure I was headed with that. But <laughs> no, I mean, that's, it's that's certainly an, excellent an issue. Point. Yeah, definitely a, an excellent point. Because uh, uh, like you said, majoring in minors, you know, I always use the example of, um, you know, if, if, you have a, if, if you have a group of paramedics that show up on a major accident, you know, with, with multiple victims and, and people uh, in various stages of, of being hurt, uh, there's something called triage. And you need to be able to say, okay, this person's injury is not life-threatening. I'm going to move on to the next guy, even though this, this first guy over here is crying in pain. And then there's somebody else that maybe is already past the point of help. And you need to be able to say, okay, here's, here's where I need to focus my attention because there's a limited number of paramedics here. And, uh, you know, uh, we have to save as many as possible. And one of the problems with LGT is that it, it kind of um, distorts a person's ability to triage uh, the various needs of the world, the various needs of the church. You know, being mm -hmm. able to say, look, this person's coming in, they come into the church, uh, they have major issues in their life. Maybe they're in some kind of crisis, things going on, but, but you know, we, we're primarily focused on the externals or we're focused on those things that affect us as opposed to what, what really matters. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's definitely a, another uh, consequence or... Uh, effect of this way of thinking yeah absolutely man so let me let me switch gears really quick because i want to get back to the theological framework and and the reason why i'm having this conversation is because at the story church project my main sort of passion or goal is i want to inspire local Adventist churches particularly in the west um to redesign themselves for mission and uh, that's certainly something that we're struggling with, with reaching, reaching, reaching Western culture. So I'm, you know, working week by week, you know, blogs, podcasts, they've even got some books up there. 
um, just to inspire local churches. Whoever comes in contact with this project, I hope you get inspired to redesign your church for mission. But part of the redesign isn't just how we do mission. It's what we say when we do mission. Like, what story are we telling, right? Um, and there's there's a lot of local Adventist churches that are completely hijacked by this story that you and I are talking about. And it's a story that is fundamentally damaging. Um, and so what I want to do is say, look, we've we've got to we've got to recapture a vision of God's heart that is certainly Adventist because I, I, I believe that we have something meaningful and unique to say, but that is healthy as well. And, and these visions that we've been taught to believe are, you know, Orthodox Adventism, they're really not, you know, and we don't have time to unpack all that historically, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to I want to go down to the theology because this basically is the story that we tell. Um, if you could narrow down the complexity of of these ideas and say, here's where it all begins. And here is the problem. Like if we can iron this out, then we can move toward a more healthy expression. What would that be? Um, I don't have a way to say this really fast, but I'll do my best. And I think I, it's better if I do it in chunks and, and you interrupt and tell me okay. whether I should. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm excited. Let's do this. Or, or move <laughs> on. But I think something we said earlier is, is a key uh, thing to, to, to recognize in the beginning. Um, both parties, so to speak, in the church, the people that are for LGT and people that are against LGT, are pushing uh, what I call what is usually known as a false dichotomy. So people have created this idea that um, if you're not with LGT, then you're in the liberal camp, you're in cheap grace. And the people on the other side also say, well, you know, LGT is the only other option to our way of looking at Adventism. And the reality is there's more than those two sides, and we need to mm -hmm. be able to differentiate. Um, I've, I've talked to LGT proponents before who the minute they realize that I'm, I'm opposing what they're saying, they immediately think uh, I disagree with the sanctuary, I disagree with the law of God, I disagree with um, you know most of the elements of, of Adventism, and I don't. Mm. In fact, I'm when when people are disagreeing with those things, I'm the one defending them, not not them. Yeah. So uh, uh, there's definitely more than two sides here, and uh, we need to we need to educate people to recognize that because I think it's it's. It seems to me that people actually join sides more because they disagree with the other side than mm. the fact that they actually agree with what, what is being promoted on their side of things. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we need to create that or make that other option available. Absolutely. All right, so what exactly are we looking at with LGT? Um, I think, like I said in the beginning, the key element is this, uh, this combination of... of you know, several elements here where um, God has to win the great controversy, and to do that, he needs to show that, uh, you know, even though Jesus overcame Satan, uh, Jesus was, was special, you know, he was the God-man, and, and in order to be able to make his case, he needs a large mass of people at the weakest of the weak, the, the last generation of humanity, to be able to, to understand the gospel and, and overcome as well. And then uh, he can make his case that what Jesus did is legitimate for us. And uh, 
you know this this way of thinking, and I I think it's it's helpful to go a little bit into the history. Uh, w one of the reasons I think people don't fully understand the logic of Andreessen, uh, ML Andreessen is the one who came up with this whole thing, or at least this version of it. Um, one of the things that, as Adventists today, we, we have a hard time relating to is the fact that the first few generation of Adventists, when they uh, survived 1844, um, they realized that they could no longer set time. They could no longer say, okay, Jesus didn't come in 1844, he's going to come in 1850-something. Um, they moved away from time setting, but the way they moved away from it is by just recognizing that um, they had a mission to do now, and Jesus was still going to come, but they just wanted to accomplish their mission, which was to take the three angels' messages to the world. And the way they thought about it, it was that uh, whatever this work it is that they have to accomplish, it's going to take a few decades, and it's going to be over. So Jesus, as far as they were concerned, was definitely coming in their lifetime. It was just a matter of a few more years. They mm -hmm. didn't have a specific date, but but it was happening sometime within their generation. Now, this is, you know, 1844 passed, the church got organized sometime over the next two decades, um, and, and, and we start growing and we start taking the message to the world. But now, um, you know, the 1900s come around, um, a few years later, Ellen White sort of moves up the scene, she passes away in, in the second decade. And now you have um, people like Andreas and who who grew up with that early generation or the, the first and second generation of Adventists realizing that something is wrong because they really, really expected Jesus to come in their lifetime. And they, they're put in a position where they have to make sense of this because it seems like the whole Adventist logic is falling apart. Now, for most of us, because we grew up 200 years later almost, it doesn't phase us as much. We don't think, oh, you know, something's wrong with Adventism, at least not all, most of us. Uh, something's wrong with Adventism because Jesus hasn't come yet. But for them, it was definitely an issue, and Andresen was trying to solve this in some way or to make sense of it. So, you know, I do want to say that the guy was genuinely trying to help the whole <clears throat> Adventist logic, you know, trying to help the church. Yeah. But um, what he came up with was this idea that um, we need to overcome sin, and when we do this, um, then Jesus is going to win the great controversy and, and be able to come. Uh, I don't think he realized the implications of this, but the unavoidable implication is that, you know, we, we've, we've had quite a number of generations since 1844, and... Um, the fact that Jesus has not come yet, if we accept Andreessen's logic, means that there is going to be a generation that's going to do something different than everybody else that lived before them. And when they do this, whatever it is that, it is that they manage to accomplish, they're going to win this battle, and then the end will come, and the great controversy will be won. And somehow he never hit, uh, crossed his mind that if such a generation did come, it would be a fairly significant uh, act in the plan of salvation to the point where you could say, hey, Jesus came and he died for us and he made it possible for us to be saved but then there's also this final generation of people that unlike anybody that ever lived before them were finally able to defeat Satan 
and they were finally able to win the battle for the rest of us. And you create this, this scenario where he, Jesus is pretty much almost equal by this group of people. And, mm. and you have to say at the end of time when, you know, we're all, when we're all up in heaven and we're all casting our crowns at Jesus' feet, that we, we probably should cast them at the, at the feet of this generation of people as well because they they definitely did something nobody else could do towards mm. our salvation. And, you know, I, I bring this up a lot of times talking to LGTers, and they, they deny it, but unfortunately there's no way to get out of it because that's the, the unavoidable, unavoidable implication of the logic that Andreessen set up. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I say that there's, there's about three reasons why this notion is heretical, and this is the most important one. Um, you know, we, we, we end up creating this scenario that's as bad as, you know, Catholics having uh, Mary as a co-redeemer or, or the saints earning merits for the, for, the, for the sinners and things like that. Whenever we uh, allow this idea that uh, such an important role can be played by human beings in the plan of salvation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me, let me I never actually you. thought about it that way. It's almost like a co-redeemer exactly, parallel. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But But the thing is, if if you move away from that idea, and you know, let me let me put this in really quick. I listened to quite a bit of uh, presentation, quite a few presentations by LGBT proponents, and I almost never hear them addressing this element, which is in fact the key feature of Andreessen's logic. They always talk about you know nature of Christ, nature of sin, the delay, uh, all the arguments that people bring against them. But this is the key piece of their puzzle, and you don't hear them talk, talk about it very much. In fact, I think uh, when they had an LGT symposium some years back, one of the LGT proponents actually backtracked from this. But the minute you back away from this idea, then um, you no longer have the incentive to, there's no, no longer that logic to have to reach perfection. Mm. Because what's the point like if you know if we don't need to defeat satan and win the great controversy then perfection is no longer mandatory like there's there's no that logic falls apart mm. so I, you know you were saying that quite a few people have published stuff against lgt recently but i think one of the things people have missed is that the key element in lgt if you break that the, the rest of their logic kind of falls apart and nobody seems to be addressing that including the lgt proponents Mm. So that's a really interesting point, because um, what you're doing is you're saying, look, let's not waste our time talking about the human nature of Christ and all this other stuff. Let's let's go to the root, sort of the primordial presupposition. Um, and let's talk about that. Like if we can if we can sort of remove this primordial presupposition then everything else kind of flows differently. You know, it's, it's, it, you end up with a completely different narrative, even though you'll still believe very highly in the law of God and, and you know, our, our development and perfection as Christians, all those different things, they just flow in a completely different way. They, they come together in a completely different way. Um, so I'm curious, um, what would you say is the better way to understand this, the more biblical Christ-centered way to understand this issue of the last generation and Christ hasn't returned yet, etc. Um, so there's there's quite a few different elements to, to uh, and I, you almost have to kind of discuss them individually once you break apart this, this frame that brings them together. But um, as far as um, 
victory over sin, as far as defeating Satan and all these things, um, the Bible definitely has a strong victory motif. You know, there's over and over again, you see, and actually I'm going to stop just to, to make a point real quick because I'm going to forget and I'll come back to this. But uh, I, I mentioned that there's three three major problems with the with this LGT central feature, you know, of the of defeating the great controversy. And the way I see it, the three problems are, one, it, it sets people up as a co-redeemer with Christ. Second, mm-hmm. it cannot be built without with the Bible alone, which mm. should be a, a horrifying thing for Adventists. Uh, and three, it, it, it creates issues with the gospel. And this mm. is something that would have to be unpacked later, but I wanted to mention that because I think those are three key elements that need to be mentioned whenever we tackle this central issue of LGT. Mm. Okay, so um, going back to what I was saying, um, there's there's a, a lot in Scripture about you know overcoming sin, the Holy Spirit giving us power over the the you know the pull of the flesh. Um, Ephesians will say things like until we reach the fullness of the statue of Christ and, and things like that. And you have you have this idea of, of a church that is. Uh, victorious in the end, you know. I have a friend that that says um, a lot of people talk about the last day church, kind of the way they, you know, if you're watching a boxing match, and at the end somebody's sitting there victorious, but they're they're so beat up that you almost wonder did they really win the fight? Mm-hmm. And he said that's not the picture that the Bible portrays. The Bible portrays a defeat of Satan at the end that is glorious. Mm-hmm. So I think there's elements of that throughout Scripture, things that LGT brings out. It's just the configuration that they, they put them in that is, is problematic. Um, but the way I see it is that um, there, is, there is this motif in Scripture of people uh, coming closer and closer to Christ as, as we approach the end. But it's the, the main reason for it is as a way to, to reach the world. So as as people see Christ in us, they're gonna accept the message more more readily, more uh, embrace it more fully. Uh, kind of the way when Jesus was on Earth, um, his character played a big part in people accepting his message. Mm. And I think part of the problem we have now is that a lot of time, our you know we go around spreading theoretical concepts, but our our own personal experience doesn't quite match up with it, so people have a hard time uh, taking us seriously, you know, in our yeah, evangelistic yeah. efforts and, and, and the things and we me, do. Let me jump in there real quick, because I think what you're saying right now is like super duper key. Um, so I'll try and I'll try and do this quickly. But um, I think, you know, and, and this is going back to my experience in, in this sort of in these circles with this mode of thought, um, you know, and there were a lot of different ministries that I connected with and preachers that I listened to, etc. Um, and, and, and so I was in this sort of mode of thought for quite a, quite some time. Um, and the thing that I found interesting is that one of the identifying elements of, of this sort of, you know, perfectionism, you know, personal piety, you know, sort of focus on that sort of thing is that my faith and the faith of everyone around me was increasingly defined by what we didn't do. 
Yeah. Um, but not defined by what we did do. And one day I was reading the Bible and it sort of hit me. I was like, wait a minute. We, we like, for example, we don't remember Jesus because he didn't eat pork. Now, I'm not saying yeah. eating pork is fine. All right. But that's not why we remember him. We remember him because he fed the hungry. So it's not what he didn't do that identified him is what he did do. Like, we don't remember Jesus because he didn't sleep around and have harems. We remember him because in a culture where women were down in the dirt, he lifted them up. He gave them their yeah. dignity, right? And so you yeah. can go through all of Jesus. Like, we remember him because of what he did, not because of what he didn't do. The positive, not the negative. And I find it interesting that this paradigm of thought that claims if you don't believe, and one of the preachers that I listen to quite often would, would say, look, if you don't believe this theology, you can become like Jesus, but it's going to be a lot harder for you. Like this theology is what enables you to become more like Jesus. And I remember looking around me and thinking, well, then why in the world are none of us, you know, like, like we're all obsessed with what we don't do and what we can't do. But none of us are actually out there, you know, like passionate about living lives that reflect the beauty of God's heart. We're just obsessed with what we're not supposed to be doing. Um, yeah. So that's why I bring that point, because I think there's, there's a distinction that needs to be made. This is a distinction that I make personally, um, and I haven't talked about this much, but there is an article that I'm publishing soon that will have some of this in there. Um, and maybe you can even help me clarify and make this make this better. But when I look at the vindication of God, it happened at the cross, right? Like yeah. the vindication of God took place at the cross. Like Satan challenged God's goodness. He challenged God's government. He challenged God's fairness, his other-centeredness. Um, it, it, Satan never challenged God by saying sinful people can't keep your law. Everybody knows sinful people can't keep his law. Like that's that's not part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is that God is unjust, that he's unfair, that he's coercive. And all of that was answered at the cross conclusively. And so I look at this vindication of God at the cross as sort of a, I don't know, to use a philosophical word, and, and maybe, I can, maybe I can find a better word. I just can't think of a better one right now. But it's sort of like an ontological vindication. Like this is the essence of his vindication. It all happens right here with Jesus at the cross. Yeah. Um, and so that's the ontological vindication. And there's nothing I can add to that. Like it's done. It's finished. Like it's, it's sorted. And so as you were saying earlier, like when we become more like Jesus and when we live these lives of, 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 of love, what what that does is it doesn't add to the vindication of God's character. It doesn't it doesn't make God capable of winning the great controversy. What it does is it enables that vindication that already took place to now spread into the world because now people look at us and they're like, oh, okay, so your God is beautiful and your God does have a you know th this story does it does have meaning. Um, and so I look at it as you know there's this ontological vindication that took place on, at the cross, and then there's probably. Um, what I would probably refer to as like a pragmatic vindication where when I live my life in a way that is not hypocritical, you know, when, you know, like Christians, and we see this a lot in America right now, you know, people who are like, yes, Jesus. And then at the same time, they're like, yeah, we hate immigrants. And you know what I mean? Like um, when, when I live a life that really reflects the love of God, then that takes what happened at the cross and makes it sort of real for people. But I'm not adding to what happened at the cross. I'm not making the vindication of God possible. I'm just living a life that helps to communicate that and spread that throughout the world. Um, so I don't know if I explained that properly, but I just wanted to jump in there because you were sort of going down that track. Like, you know, this, you know, just because we deny that perfection is what leads us to, you know, become, as you say, um, so, so brilliantly, these co-redeemers. Um, that brings the great controversy to an end doesn't mean that we therefore reject 
perfection or any value that the idea brings to the table. Like it does yeah, have value, yeah. you know. It just yeah, doesn't have that, that value. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th those, those, those definitely right on track. Uh, perfection um, is actually a positive thing when you think about it, because pretty much any any real Christian has struggled with with their with their with themselves. I mean, anybody that has genuinely uh, met Christ personally and has has repented of their sins, have has tried to follow God in some way, has at some point recognized their their own sinful tendencies and has thought to themselves, man, why couldn't I be more like Christ? And 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 so perfection, the idea of perfection is a positive. Uh, God tells us, hey, you can be. You mm. don't have to be stuck in this mire. You don't mm. have to be like the world where we're trying to serve me. So. Um, there's we're not we're not backing away from from that idea. We're not saying you know, keep grace. Jesus died for you, so you're fine the way you are. Just stay the way you are. No, why would I want to stay the way I am? That's this right, is yeah. this is not the gospel. The gospel is is you know the disciples before the cross and after the cross were totally different people, and we want to have that experience. Mm. But uh, um, like you said, it's it's to take it's it's because. It's also for ourselves because it's it is a great experience, but it's also for the world to to see God um, through our actions, which they might never get to hear if they just hear the theory of it. That's right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that's like really brilliantly stated because, like, I'll give you an example. And I, I there was a point in my life after I came out of LGT where I leaned really strongly toward this more like cheap grace. Um, I, I leaned really, because I, I like I, I was trying to get my head right, you know, so <laughs> yeah. um, so I did go through a phase where I was like, okay, so salvation is legal justification only end of story period full stop. Right. Um, yeah. And I was in an emotional point in my life where I needed that. And so I think that was part of my journey. And, and, and you know, I don't I don't you know, I, I think people go through these different stages and that's okay. But what really hit me was um, I could give you some some scenarios that I've encountered recently. Um, so uh, at Andrews University, I think it was last year, it might have been earlier this year, there was a situation that took place where there was a basketball game going on. Uh, I, and I think it was Andrews University. I hope I'm not wrong with that. I'm not a journalist guy, so forgive me if I'm wrong. But it was definitely an Adventist University. There was a basketball game going on, and I think it was on Twitter. Somebody jumped on and started making these really racist comments about the players because most of the players were African-American. So somebody was yeah. making these really racist comments, like some of the most disgusting things. And look, I've known racist people throughout my life. Like this stuff was on a whole other level of creativity. It was disturbing. Um, and and it was an anonymous person, but it, it was the, 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 the account was a woman, but it wasn't like, you know, like fake name, fake face type, 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 type of thing. Um, so she's making all these um, really racist comments. And then someone comments underneath with you know like basically pointing out like you know like there's a special place in hell reserved for people like you i think is what the comment said what? um and her reply was super telling her reply was i've been washed by the blood of jesus i'm not worried about judgment and and to me it's like really you know <laughs> like because because i have this legal declaration that says i'm innocent i can like be racist and spew hatred and um, you know, all of these different things. And I've heard people say this on lots of different settings. You know, there's been people who've been abusive to their wives, abusive to their kids, and they, and they just go back and claim, oh, I'm forgiven. You know what I mean? And so there's a reason why I fu fully believe that the gospel is a born-again experience. It's justification and sanctification. But when you take perfection to say, well, 
you've you've got to go through this process and you've got to reach this point of like you know like this finish line or else god won't receive you then you take that message of sanctification and holiness and instead of it being something beautiful and romantic now it's this disturbing scary anxiety inducing thing so we we mess up the narrative by claiming to be a uh, um by claiming to be allies of it if that makes sense yeah exactly we we basically destroy the very thing that would even be able to ever get us to the stage where we reflect Christ in our character. Yes. Um, I, I have this saying that I, I, I always say when I talk to LGT supporters, I say, I think LGT supporters are the ones that have most delayed Christ coming, which to them, you know, <clears throat> it's kind of mind-blowing because they're the ones that are promoting that whole concept of delay to begin with. But, mm. but to some degree, it, it, this, this way of reasoning has slowed things down rather than speed up uh, any kind of, you know, progress for, for our people. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I want to point out one more element and then I want to look and then I want to talk about the local church a little bit and give some of our listeners um, some encouragement and some practical tools, because depending on where you are in the world, this these ideas can be really embedded in your local church culture and and it can be really discouraging to work with these ideas um, because ideas breed um, behaviors and so it can be really discouraging um, and so I want to I want to end with some some encouragement and some practical points but I do want to point out one other thing that I think is important to point out and that is that um, I want to go back in history a little bit to the time you know when uh, uh, again we were we were discussing Andreasen and look I, I don't think low of Andreasen at all I, I actually think that he he like you said before he was doing the absolute best he could in the context that he was in, there was a lot of stuff going on, um, and and I don't know. Maybe if I had lived back then, uh, I I might have gone down the same track he did. Um, but one of the things that uh, that that I find really interesting is, um, and if you're not familiar with this history, don't trip over it too much. Um, I'll put some links in the show notes and in the blog, and, and for some good books you can read about it. But during the 1950s, there's what you know those familiar with Adventist history know is the the questions on doctrine crisis. Um, where, and there's so much, <laughs> so much we could unpack about that. Yeah, um, it's a long conversation. Long conversation. But to put it short, um, there's some Adventist leaders who were meeting with some evangelical Calvinists and the evangelical Calvinists wanted to know from the horse's mouth, so to speak, are Adventists a cult or not? And so the Adventist leaders were answering doctrinal questions um, that the Calvinists were asking. And the end result of that was that the Calvinists say, oh, okay, you guys are not a cult. But um, Andreasen was really upset during this period because he felt that um, some of the beliefs of Adventism were actually being misrepresented by these leaders because they were trying to get evangelical approval. Um, so that's basically the where the controversy sort of, because, you know, then Andreasen started publishing these letters and went on this sort of like warpath with these leaders. And then the leaders responded in ways that weren't exactly the, the wisest. And there's a lot of mess there. And we're not going to get into that now because we've already been going for 57 minutes and 59 seconds. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but this is the point that I want to point out that during this crisis, one of the things that began to develop um was this idea so there was this sort of idea that Andreasen began um promoting that that there was this underhanded conspiracy like this there was this deep state within adventism <laughs> yeah. that um that was pushing this conspiracy to undermine true adventism in order to make it acceptable to the broader evangelical community and so what that conspiracy theory has done 
is that then it gave birth to a culture within Adventism that has a fundamental a priori distrust of anything in Adventist leadership. Um, and so it creates these cultures of us versus them. Like I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and they are too, but I don't trust them. Now, why don't you trust them? Well, you know, you try and find little bits here and there, but really at the end of the day, you don't trust anyone who's in a position of authority in the church because you've bought into this sort of conspiracy theory. And so what I have found is that at the local church level, because that's where that's where I'm ultimately headed here, is this this causes so much damage for mission because now you have a divided church. You've got people who in local churches who will say, I want nothing to do with the youth department and I want nothing to do with the conferences evangelism department. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to have our own independent ministries and invite them out here. And we're not going to work with anyone because they're all the bad guys and we're the good guys, you know. Um, yeah. And not only that, but it creates this idea that as Adventists, and this is sort of another kind of worms that maybe we can talk about in the future, but this idea that as Adventists, we should have zero zilch, absolutely nothing to do with anyone who's not Adventist. Yeah. Um, and so anytime, and I've seen this, like I'll quote someone who's not an Adventist and I'll have people who will write me and accuse me of, you know, like undermining the church because I quoted someone who's not an Adventist. Um, even though Ellen White's books are full of quotes from people who are an Adventist. So it's kind of a weird, I don't know how they make sense of that. But anyways, um, this idea that is this sort of this 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 suspicious culture this culture of suspicion is is yeah. what i'm getting at in the local church um is a culture of suspicion to our leaders is a culture of suspicion to people who aren't from our faith tribe and it's even a culture of suspicion among one another are you holy enough are you perfect enough do you do things yeah. i disagree with you know mm -hmm. it kills mission and you watch somebody walk into a local church like this who is not from church, who's seeking God. And this is an environment that is toxic and and they're not going to stay. And if they do stay, they'll become twice the devil <laughs> that yeah. we are. You know, we, yeah. we get our hands on them. And we can see this in George Knight's own um, um, testimony where he be became an Adventist and he became twice as bad as the people that, that reached him with these ideas. Um, yeah. Praise God for his, you know, redemption story. But anyways... What do you think about these practical challenges, this sort of conspiratorial, suspicious culture and, 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 and within the church? And and we're leaning now as we close our conversation toward healing. Like, how can we heal theologically and also practically as we as we face these challenges in our local churches? Yeah, so that's that's, uh, you know, I, I fully, fully agree with, with your whole analysis there. I think. Uh, um, Andreessen's ideas had been around since the 30s, 1930s. Uh, and and they, they made their way into the church because he was fairly influential. But the whole QOV scenario and this, this conspiracy that that people started biting into from there, that's what really affected, you know, almost, what, 100, no, 70, 80 years, whatever it's been since then. And um, <clears throat> there's several things I would say about that. First... We've had all these decades to see the the fruits of of this this situation. You know, uh, people that um, insisted that you know the the organized church is not heading in the right in the right direction ha have had way more than enough opportunity to show a, a better alternative, and yet uh, we're still here. Jesus hasn't come yet. All this all these independent groups that have done their version of Adventism and have done things their way. I don't see any any benefit. In fact, things have gone gone backwards. 
Yeah. Mm. Ideas that they were promoting at the beginning, they're no longer pushing. They, they pretty much withdrawn from them. Um, there's no fruits to this, this whole effort. Uh, there's nothing tangible to look at and say, okay, Adventism is better because of this. Mm. Um, this. The second major problem is that the actual result of this split has created an environment that has allowed even bigger problems to come into the church, problems that we would have probably never been susceptible to. Um, outside theologies that Adventism would have probably had nothing to do with if we had stayed united. But mm. today we have this, this uh, um, uh, what would you call it, a, a, plur a pluralistic environment in the Adventist church that, you know, maybe three, four decades ago people could not even have imagined. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've said before, and I stand by my sermon, that I think um, the whole 1980s situation with, with the Glacier View would never have had the impact it had, had it not been for, for this whole split in the 1950s and, and, uh, and all these theological uh, controversies going on. Mm. So um, what do we have to show for it? You know, it's people, and the final thing I'll say about that is that conspiratorial uh, mentality has caused people to be uh, afraid of education, afraid of theological education specifically, which is unfortunate because um, we actually could have found a solution to some of the key issues that divided us if we had dug deeper, in, deeper into the theology. Mm. Um, what, what, we're, what we were dealing with here was um, figuring out how Adventist theology fits within the wider context of Christian theology. And um, we have some difficulties because to some degree we're connected with our Protestant brothers and sisters because we do believe that God used Martin Luther and we do believe in Sola Scriptura and we do have certain elements in common. But there's other elements that we don't agree with, things like the state of the dead. Uh, or the, the, the condition of, of, of or the identity or the, whatever man is, man's uh, ontology, to use a fancy word. Um, the, our understanding of God, there's, there's different views of God within the Christian community, and we have different views on that. But we also have things in common, things we identify with in, in the Gospels, I mean, regarding the Gospel. And if we had been able to really, you know, dig into the theology without being afraid of it and study out what people believe and where we differ, we could have actually understood how it all comes together and have come up with solutions to all these problems we've been debating about for decades. Hmm. But instead, because of this uh, uh, controversy and this uh, fear, we've been kind of just going in circles. Yeah. Yep. So I, I don't even know if I actually answered your question, but these are these three things that I, I think are the result of this uh, situation that could have definitely been avoided. Absolutely, man. Well, as we as we get ready to wrap up, I, I, I'm interested in sort of what you think uh, on this particular scenario. Uh, say we've got, you know, um, someone listening who attends a local church and they recognize a lot of these toxic, um, heretical ideas uh, and and they, they see the impact that it's having on people's spiritual lives and, and on the mission of the church. What, what can someone do? What can the average Joe do? 
to help turn things around, uh, assuming that they want to. Because, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you're like, look, I'm really burnt and I need to go, then I would advise you to go. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But if you are someone who's like, look, I'm actually I want to do something about this. I've got the energy to, to do something about it. Uh, how would you advise them going about that? Um, of course, it's going to depend on the role the individual has in the church. If they're a pastor, they have a certain level of authority. If they're, if they're, you know, a table teacher or just a regular member sitting in the pews, there's there's a, a limit to what they might be able to do on the, in the public sphere. But um, I would say, to whatever de- degree they can do something, to start by um, establishing a firm Adventist foundation. Um, in, in the way they, they present their points of view. So uh, instead of attacking the LGT in other people's, um, yeah, that they see in other people, start by, by really um, establishing a firm, uh, you know, just help getting people to realize that you definitely believe Adventist theology, you definitely believe in overcoming sin, you definitely believe in the sanctuary, you definitely believe in the Adventist message. Mm. So that there's this common basis. So people realize that you're not pushing some liberal agenda. You're not pushing some outside theology. Um, And then once that is accomplished, if there's individual elements that you run into that you feel need to be addressed, um, address them by trying to show people that there's an alternative way of thinking about it. In other words, don't just knock down somebody who believes a certain thing and you don't you disagree with it but show them that there's another way of looking at that same idea that is healthy that is still in line with the bible doesn't contradict the spirit of prophecy and um, it's a better way of looking at it overall and it doesn't involve all the all the heretical elements and all the all the problematic parts so yeah, that is really helpful, man. Thank you so much, Mike. And and you know, I'd add from from you know for those who are listening, maybe someone's listening who's like, look, uh, I've been caught up in these ideas as well, and um, and they've done damage, and I'm trying to figure stuff out. Because uh, I talk to people like this from time to time who are just ready to leave the church because they they can't make sense of this stuff. Uh, I just want to encourage you, man. And uh, I'll put some. Uh, resources in the show notes and uh, in the blog on the storychurchproject.com you can check those out there um and and read them so you can because mike and i like we barely scratched the surface here you know we've only got one hour and and it's not a lot of time um and so i just want to encourage you and 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 just remember like this is something that really hit me throughout my journey that if i want to be like jesus right let's 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 think about that idea for a moment if i want to be like jesus if i want to be you know if i want to have a life that is free and overcoming um then I have to, first of all, feel safe in the arms of God. Like, if you do not feel safe in God's arms, you'll never, ever thrive or grow in your Christian experience. And that's something that really hit me really hard because, you know, while I was in these ideas, I didn't feel safe in God's arms, but I was trying to overcome and I was trying to, like, have this thriving Christian experience while not feeling safe. I mean, just picture any relationship where you don't feel safe. Can it grow? Absolutely not. Um, and so I'd really just encourage you to hunker down on the gospel and what God has done for you because that's the heartbeat of you know everything. And when we feel safe in Him, then everything else flows so much, you know, like naturally. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and so yeah, look, I'll put some sources, resources, and stuff. But uh, apart from those resources, I do want to mention one more thing, Mike, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, you have a website where you write lots of articles, and 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 I know you're not doing as much anymore because you're you're pastoring now, but. Uh, there's still some really good stuff on there that people can go and check out and learn a little bit more about uh, just your different perspectives. Uh, what is that website? How can we get there? 
Okay, so um, um, my main website is intelligentadventist.com. Uh, my friend Adrian and I have been publishing stuff there for a while. It, whenever we get to it, it's not like a consistent thing. Um, so there's some resources there. Um, and also if people go to my Facebook, um, I believe most stuff is public on, on my Facebook account as well, uh, Mike Cyprian Manea. Um, so if, if anybody wants to, to reach me in some way, those are probably two ways to, to get a hold of me. Beautiful. And, and I'll have the links uh, in the show notes as well. Mike, it's been absolutely awesome, man. Thank you for taking the time to uh, to share with us and to dialogue with us. I learned some cool stuff from our conversation. I hope our listeners have learned as well. And uh, once again, guys, I just want to remind you, wherever you are, no matter where you are, let's work together to redesign Adventism for mission. Take care, guys. God bless. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>